0: And as we consider our theme of the biblical qualifications for the office of elder in the church, let us first of all turn to the second book of Kings, chapter 5. Second Kings, chapter 5. This will provide us a, a historical example of what it is that the love of money can do to a man. 2 Kings chapter 5, after which we will turn again to 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first three verses. In 2 Kings chapter 5, of course, we are back in Old Testament times, the time of the divided kingdom and the monarchies of both kingdoms. And there were a number of things going on in the world outside the courts of the king. 2nd Kings chapter 5. I'll read the entire chapter. This is the word of God. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior but he was a leper now the arameans had gone out in bands and take and had taken captive a little girl from the land of israel and she waited on naaman's wife she said to her mistress i wish that my master were with the prophet who is in samaria then he would cure him of his leprosy Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a range. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now but he said as the lord lives before whom i stand i will take nothing and he urged him to take it but he refused naaman said if not please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to the lord in this matter may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there and he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him Go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. But Gahazi Gehazi The servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean, by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? He said, all is well, my master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. And he said to him, did not my heart go with you? When the man turned from his chariot to meet you. Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. 1 Timothy 3 It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Many great men of the Bible, given the opportunity, the historical opportunity, might have inquired of the Apostle Paul, So, Brother Paul, what's so wrong with the acquisition of material wealth? Shouldn't we reckon the riches we've received to be among the many blessings of our covenant God to the faithful? The men who might have asked Paul these questions include such other biblical giants of the faith as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, Boaz, David, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea, and others all of them rich men. To whom the apostle might have replied, as in fact he did reply to the Philippians, look, brothers, I've learned to be content in whatever situation I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and any, any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So whether it's with a superabundance of material resources, or whether we endure a long season of barely scraping by, God in Christ always provides enough as his people, using the appointed means for us to live. And the key word here, of course, is enough. He provides enough. As long as God is our Father, as long as Christ is our Good Shepherd, we simply shall not want. will always have enough. And King David too said as much memorably so in the 37th psalm. He says, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. In all his long colorful life, through all the highs and lows, the peaks and valleys, David never once saw such a thing as our covenant gods leaving his people destitute. Because he doesn't. Through vital faith in Christ Jesus, you and I can be absolutely confident that whatever our economic circumstances might be, we will always have enough. In anxious times like our own, With all this talk you hear of coming shortages and famine and desperate times ahead, that personal confidence in Christ that you have has the power to make you the envy of all of your worried friends. And it has the power to make the church the envy of all the world. Because we stand resolutely on that apostolic promise to the faithful church. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, beloved, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, in today's text, the Holy Spirit tells us that the overseer must be free from the love of money. Let's look at this credential carefully. Whether you measure it in terms of livestock, or land, or gold, or silver, or investment portfolios, or whatever, it's not the wealth. It's not the money. That represents the heart of the problem, isn't it? Is it? It's the love of money. So the problem isn't too much money, it's too much love, which is a statement that I never thought I'd hear myself say. Too much love. Too much love lavished, of course, on the wrong object of that love. And from this very important distinction, the apostle never in all of his writings wavers. He never wavers. It's not the money that's the problem. It's the greed. It's not the money. It's the tight fist that holds it. Here in verses 2 and 3, an overseer must be free from the love of money, on which he expands later in this same epistle. In chapter 6, verses 7 and following, Paul says, We brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich, there's the love of money, there's the longing for it. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all the evils and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang We simply don't want such men leading us, do we? We don't want such men teaching us the kingdom of God if their love is set on money. Just consider Gehazi, about whom we read a few moments ago in Second Kings 5. There is a man who for the love of money pierced himself with many a pang, not to mention his descendants Beloved, longing for money, loving money, leads men into some really stupid practices. Isn't it often the love of money, which is idolatry, that leads men to make, for instance, rash vows. Rash vows. Vows they have no real intention of keeping. Think of those who through history, and even to the present day, marry for money. Doesn't usually work out very well. Or think, for instance, of those who are in our country's highest civil offices, those who daily violate, who flout their solemn oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. A Constitution that very strictly limits the powers of the federal government. You hear their public speeches, you feel the impact of their policies upon your God-given liberties, and you have to wonder whether these civic officials have ever even read the document. But taking that oath to preserve, protect, and defend it was a requirement for entering into the office and exerting its powers and bringing in not only the salary but also all the emoluments that that document prohibits so the love of money which is idolatry leads godless men to take the name of the lord of the lord our god in vain through rash vows that are prohibited in the third commandment Then there's the fourth commandment. Closer to the everyday life of most of us, the love of money often leads men to violate God's Sabbath. Often. Now, I'm not addressing here the various works of necessity and mercy. Those good works rightly go on 24-7. Caring for the sick and injured, for instance. Maintaining civil law and order, suppressing fires and other disasters. Preaching the gospel. These are among the works of necessity and mercy, and God approves them seven days a week. Now I'm speaking now of men and women who violate God's Sabbath, who treat it not as a delight, but as just another workday merely for the additional income that Sabbath work brings in. God's fourth commandment reminds us that he's given us six other days of the week to do that. Six out of seven days to do all your work. Remember that in the beginning, on the seventh day, God himself rested from all his work. God himself did. And for the love of money, will a mere man now refrain from resting? We have to ask ourselves, who does the careless Sabbath-breaker actually think that he is? The love of money drives some people to misallocate not only their time but even their personal affections. In Mark 7, verses 6 to 13, we find Jesus rebuking the scribes and Pharisees who refuse to use their material resources, their personal wealth, their money, to help their needy parents. In allocating their wealth for other things, things far less central to the interests of the kingdom of God, they violate the fifth commandment, to honor our father and mother. The love of money leads to violations of the sixth commandment as well. Think of Judas Iscariot, who for the love of 30 pieces of silver consigned one good man to crucifixion and death and ultimately himself to suicide. Judas was a man who loved Money. In Proverbs chapter 7, it's the luxury of couch and coverings, the colored linens of Egypt, the sprinkling of the bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. These things, that is the love of money and all these sensuous, titillating things that money can buy, these things lead this naive young man into the seduction of an adulteress that leads him to the playboy life and to ruin. The Eighth Commandment, the application here is almost too easy. It's the love of money that holds the gun stuck into the ribs of every victim from the clerk down at the Seven Eleven to the U.S. taxpayer who is required to feed a ravenous federal government more in a sliding scale of taxes than God himself requires in the simple and straightforward tithe. The robber, whoever he is, loves money more than he loves the commandment of God, and therefore he robs the defenseless. Beloved, these things ought not to be. Now, by now you can see the conclusion to which all this is leading, that there is not a single one of God's Ten Commandments that the love of money doesn't violate. It violates them all fundamentally because it violates the very first and foundational one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. the love of money which is idolatry is a major problem in the world at large let's never allow it into the church let's not open the door to it and yet both history and experience show that it's here it's here And it damages the whole church by its mere presence among us, even its secret presence. Now, the best examples of this tend to be biblical examples. I think the best examples of just about anything tend to be biblical examples. So let's just consider a few of those. The first we'll look at comes from Joshua chapter 7. Achan's lust for The 200 shekels of silver that he found during the fall of Jericho, along with a a gold bar that weighed 50 shekels, and a nice-looking coat that he found. This hidden lust for money cost 36 men their lives at the first battle of Israel for Ai. Because even though Achan's fellow Israelites didn't know about the, authorized, the unauthorized pilferage, God knew. God knew. And if God knows, then you can be sure that short of repentance, your sins will find you out. we have already read of Gehazi's greed and how it played out for him in Second Kings 5. The precipitating cause of his subsequent life of leprosy was the unauthorized taking of these two bags of silver and two changes of clothes. Close as he was to the godly prophet Elisha, privileged as Gehazi was every day to see the mighty works of God unfolding before his very eyes. In his heart of hearts, Gehazi loved money. But let me mention one particular case that haunts the church down to the present day. You'll find it in Malachi 2, beginning at verse 7. God here tells the Old Testament church, Return to me, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? God answers them. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, says the Lord God to his own covenant people. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, he says, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows." Yes, dear ones, there is sin to be repented of in the church. It's the withholding of God's due. And once repented of, we can expect the windows of heaven to be open to us. We can expect a downpour of blessing. Now, when I say this, I hope you won't misunderstand me. I don't think of God as some cosmic vending machine, He's not. But I can assure you, he does keep his promises. He keeps them. In the New Testament, we soon run across Acts chapter 5. The deceitful holding back of promised proceeds from real estate cost both Ananias and Sapphira their lives. Their love of money led this married couple to connive and collude and lie to the Holy Spirit and his church. By now it's clear that um, this secret sin of loving money is worth inquiring into as we consider who might serve as our future shepherds, elders, and overseers. It's worth looking into because God's blessing attends personal contentment with his all-wise provision. A curse attends the deliberate withholding of whatever is due to God and neighbor, as it does also the preaching of any gospel, promising, for instance, health and wealth on this side of glory. God pronounces a curse on it, the false gospel of prosperity. The fact of the matter is, Christ is constant. Wealth is not. Let none of us set our hearts upon wealth. The proverb says it best in chapter 23 of the Proverbs. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone for it certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Dear ones, let me close with this. The proper aim of the pastor, the shepherd of Christ's church, is safely to lead his flock out and in again. Safely to lead his flock out of the sucking, slippery mud and mire of sin and into the lush green pastures of Christ's righteousness. Out of the glittering vanity fair of this Babylon, into the glorious celestial city from which Christ today beckons us. Out of the transient, into the eternal, out of the love of money, into the love of Christ. That's the elder's job. The pastor's job. And he cannot lead us who doesn't himself know the way. An overseer then must be above reproach, free from the love of money. God, give us the grace to find him. Let us pray. Our heavenly Father, we thank you for the rich grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the superabundance of wealth and the riches with which he is stored. We thank you, heavenly Father, that the world belongs to you. All of its riches belong to you and you wisely, providentially dispense them as you see fit. We pray that you would spare us within our own hearts from a grasping, self-centered heart. We pray that you would expand our hearts by the gospel that we might give to you what is your due, which is to say our everything, to count all things that we have to be yours but also to give what is due to our neighbor. We ask, O Lord, that you will give us open hearts and open hands. We pray this especially for those who lead us. We pray that they would do so faithfully, gently, humbly, that they would teach us not only with word, but by example, what it is to follow after. Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, in his precious name we pray, amen.